So I realized that over the past couple of weeks, I've been doing a lot of preaching and not so much teaching. And I want to give you all a chance to uh, participate and cooperate. And so this week, if you have a handout, if you look on your notes, on your email, you'll see that we're going to have a very unique Bible study time this week. There are fill in the blanks for you, but they're not fill in the blanks. They're actually more like essays. So it's like a mm, open-ended question. So I'm going to expect you all to be talking back to me today. And uh, we're going to be mainly focusing on um, three parables of Jesus in Matthew chapter 25, which is distinct in the Gospels because it follows right after Matthew 24. I know that's insight you can't get anywhere else except right here. Yeah. And so what's what's interesting about that is that um, 25, Matthew 25, chapter 25, is, is basically three parables Jesus teaches. But they are tied directly to and are, are critical in the understanding of Matthew 24, which we are, which is the end times. Exactly. And so what I'm really what we're looking at is this class has been building this class started, you know, back in 1842. And we started back then. And it was seems like that long, doesn't it? <laughs> Maybe it wasn't quite 1842. It was like yesterday. Oh, for you, you just came in last week, newbie. So um, we were looking at the Holy Spirit. And we still continue to look at the Holy Spirit um, as we focus in our version Bible study. So if you don't have the version Bible app, make sure you download that or see me or Lindy, and we'll get you connected with that. And you can get on the group and then you can be part of the discussion for that um, for that that Bible study, which is very helpful. I appreciate those who do it. Um, and so, what we've done is we've started with the Holy Spirit, and we explored the power of the Holy Spirit and how God works through us with the power of the Holy Spirit, and why we have power through the Holy Spirit. Why the gifts? Why do we have those? And now we are transitioning. We are now transitioning to the next phase of the Holy Spirit study. Because the Holy Spirit doesn't just come upon us and give you power to have power. The Holy Spirit does not just give you gifts to have gifts. If you look at the pattern of Scripture, everywhere someone is empowered by the Spirit of God, when the Spirit of God in the Old Testament would come upon a prophet or a person or a judge, it would be for a purpose. It would not just be for the power. It would be something that God's doing in them, through them, with them. And so when we receive the Holy Spirit, it's not just to receive the Holy Spirit. It should be a verb after Yes, yes, there's a verb. There has to be an action. Action. Thank you, Mr. Roy. Action. And so for us, the empowering of the Holy Spirit is coming upon us so that we can complete the mission of Christ. The command of Christ. To go ye and tell the gospel. Remember that idea that once you receive the message and you become the vessel of the message of God, you're now the messenger of God. So as that message gets deposited in you, forgiveness, mercy, grace, all the things that God gives us, that then becomes your point of activation that you're supposed to be going out and sharing that. Your knowledge of God is supposed to go out because now you have the message. You are now the messenger. Okay. So, with that in mind, so that's where we're going. So we're going to be transitioning um, into that. So one of the motivating factors of that, I believe, is where we live. Um, and I don't mean where we live geographically. I mean where we live chronologically. Where are we in the story of God? Towards the end. Mr. Royce calls out uh, towards the end. 
I will agree with Mr. Roy. It, to me, it really, and, there, and here's the thing about Christians. All Christians throughout history have felt that they are towards the end. Now, um, we are more right than they were. We are closer today. And no, you know, you're right. We are more right than they were. We are so much closer. You know, the return of Christ is today closer than it was yesterday. And it will be closer tomorrow than it is today. So you were always right in that supposition. Yes, Mr. Glenn. Just because you have to say everybody was looking at the end time. You remember the bad Chicago fire? The history of Chicago fire? Yes, burned down the city of Chicago, 1800s. There had his son stay with him and his wife and his daughters on the boat back to England so they could be safe. Right. And she was the only surviving one to survive and the boat sank. Yes. That prompted the song, I can't remember. Right it is well with my soul. It comes, she comes back. They lived in Chicago Farm and they went to Israel because they knew they would be there at the end time in Israel. I never knew that part of the story. That's a be- it's a beautiful story, the story of that song, and it's well with my soul. Um, ever- Crusades thought that they were like bringing on the end times. By- they were going to get back to Jerusalem and bring on the end times. Yeah. Even the apostles thought that, that, that the Lord was coming real soon. And the Corinthians and the Thessalonians thought it as well because Paul would write letters and say, no, in fact, someone thought he'd already come back. It's like, no, it hadn't happened yet. We got a little bit of time. It hadn't happened yet. Don't, don't, don't be bad like that. Don't feel bad about that. And so um, with all that in mind, uh, do this. There we go. With all of that in mind, I want to tell you where we're going to be today. So we're going to be in Matthew 25. And there's a reason we're in Matthew 25, because um, God has to send me lessons to teach you all on Sunday. And so I know it's in that weird. Yeah. And so sometimes the, as I call it, the download doesn't come until really late in the week. And so this week I'm doing, so I do, you know, three or four different Bible studies during the week. So this week I'm going, it's interesting, you know, nothing's really showing up yet for that class. I mean, what's going on? So finally I put, I put God to the test, which you're not supposed to do. And so I think Thursday morning I said, um, so, Lord, what should I be teaching about on Sunday? And um, so he put two passages in my head. And the first one he put in my head was Jeremiah 24. So right, I'll go there. I'll look that up. So I read that. And that's, you might know it. It's the story of the good figs and the bad figs. And so the prophet Jeremiah is shown in this vision of this distinction between these two bowls of figs. And one is ripe and ready and good to eat. And one is not good to eat it's kind of overripe it's kind of gone bad because it hasn't been dealt with properly and and i thought okay i can i can i can dig on that yeah i can see that i said what else should there be and he said we need to go to isaiah 5 i said let's go to isaiah 5 so what isaiah 5 so isaiah 5 is another one of these stories it's interesting this is it's kind of like a parable in the old testament it's a story illustrating the deep truth that god has so in isaiah 5 he's telling isaiah the prophet this story about he says, you know, there was a man who had a vineyard and he did all this work preparing it. He built a hedge. He dug a wine press. He cultivated it. He did. He planted. He fertilized. He did all this stuff expecting beautiful grapes to be produced, this wonderful fruit to come forth and this glorious wine to be made from it. And that was his expectation. We we're talking about the expectations of God. That was the expectation of the vine master. 
And what did the divine master receive from this place where he plowed all this work and effort into? He got wild grapes. He didn't get the cultivated stuff he was looking for, the useful things. He got the useless stuff he couldn't use. And because of that, the story goes to Isaiah. It's like, I'm going to tear it all down. I'm going to take down the walls. I'm going to take down the hedges. I'm going to let anybody who wants to come in. The animals will have it. The, whoever wants to just destroy it and just let it be gone. Well, that's a picture of what happens to the nation of Israel, right? Yeah. God has expectations for them. He protects them. He cultivates it. He does all this stuff, and they don't respond to him according to his expectations. And he just, in 70 AD, is desolate. The Romans come in. Titus says, I'm tired of all this. Destroy it. Tear it all down. And then when you're done destroying it, come in with just carts of salt and put a layer of salt across the entire city. Nothing's going to come back here again. This, is, this place is done, and I'm done with them. And that's what God did. That was the prophecy of Isaiah. That was the expectation of God. That was what happened. So, so let me tell you where that led me. So God has expectations of us because he does certain things to produce certain things in us, with us, and through us. And then God takes all these reasonable steps to see that his expectations will be met. Right now, you're experiencing one of those reasonable steps that God's expectations will be met in you. Because you were sitting in a class learning about God and his expectations and his training, and what he wants from you and what he expects from you. Now, at some point, there's an inspection. There is a point of inspection that God will come to for those subjects of that preparation, whether it's the figs we were talking about in Jeremiah 24, whether it's the grapes in Isaiah chapter 5. And here's where we're going to go with this. There is coming a great and terrible day of the Lord. And it is closer today than it was yesterday. And it will be closer tomorrow than it is today. And the great and terrible day of the Lord is all through scripture. In fact, as we approach Easter and we look at the, and Christmas, you know, we look at the birth and life of Christ his death and resurrection. There are somewhere between 250 and 325 prophecies about the first coming of Christ, his life and his ministry. And we all believe that happened. And we can look at scripture and we can look at the record of the gospels and we can say, yep, here's a prophecy in the Old Testament. Here's a fulfillment in the New Testament in the life of Christ. The time where we are right now and we are approaching, there are more scriptures written about this time than there are written about that time, about when Jesus walked the shores of Galilee. There are on the order of almost double in magnitude. It's over, depending on who you're looking at, it's over 700, perhaps 750 scriptures talking about the second coming of Christ and all the events surrounding that. So the scripture is very dedicated to this event for where we are now. And here's the thing about it. I want us to use the reality of the great and terrible day of the Lord, the second coming of Christ, as the point of motivation to be very serious about the work of God, to be serious about the empowering of the Holy Spirit for us to do that work. I want it to be a point of motivation for you. 
All right. Jesus said, for there will be great tribulation, affliction, distress, and oppression such as has not been from the beginning of the world until now. No, and now will never, ever be again. Matthew 24, 21. And those are red letters. So we can't debate about what does he mean? It's, it's pretty clear plain. All right. There's going to be a time like no matter how bad it was in the past, what point in history you look at, what events happen to people, there's something coming, a period of time that's going to be so dreadfully awful that if God didn't step in and say that's enough, just stop it, nobody would live. No piece of humanity would survive. We would all go away. We would all be annihilated. That's a horribly terrible thought to think about. Now, in Matthew 25, Jesus is just given this whole dissertation to the disciples in 24. He's got a special inside group. Matthew, he talks to Peter, Andrew, James, and John, the inside group. He talks to them. It's like a private briefing. And he tells them, here's what's going to happen when I'm coming back. Here's what, here are the things to look for. Here's what to expect. This is going to happen. And he's telling them a couple things. He's saying, here's your warning for what's going to happen. And then the second part of the chapter is, I want you, here's your responsibility. You are to be watching, ready, and working. All right. This isn't a time to retreat and run to the hills. This is a time to be engaged. All right. So to further illustrate this for these men and for us in Matthew 25, he tells these three stories. So he instructs people on how to be ready when he's returned. And he does it this way. There's a, the first story is in Matthew. And we'll get, we're going to read this. I need somebody to turn to Matthew 25, 1 through 13. I need somebody to read that. I need someone to look at Matthew 25, 14 through 30. That's the second parable. And the last one is Matthew 25, 31 to 46. The first one, and here we go again. This is expectation set. Preparations made to meet the expectations of God. And then the point where he steps in and has a separation, a judgment. And the judgments go like this. The first section is wise or foolish, the virgins. The second one is the faithful or the unfaithful, the stewards, the servants. The third one is the separation of the sheep and the goats. And these are the three parables. So, each of these contain certain common elements. And as we go through them, we're going to be stopping and asking questions about them. I want you to really pay attention as you read this um, and listen to it because I, I expect you all to respond to me today. But here's some of the common elements we're going to see in these three stories. There is a surprise moment of accountability. The bridegroom returns. The master comes back. The, the shepherd is distinguishing between sheep, sheep and goats. There is a point where it all happens, and it all happens suddenly, without expectation. You know what's coming, but you don't know when. The next thing is, and this is, this is one of those motivated. this is what I hope will be a motivating factor for you. After the moment of accountability, there are no more second chances. Now is the time that we see the God of second chances. But there will be a point in the story of God where the second chances run out. And I hope that grieves your heart a little bit and brings a tear to your eye when you think about what that means for some people that you know and love. And these are things that I cannot escape and you cannot escape if you honestly look at these stories. 
The third thing that happens is in all these stories, there are two very distinct groups here in each case. Wise or foolish, those who are good, faithful servants or those who are unfaithful, those who are sheep and those who are goats. It's, it's just clear. You, you cannot get around these three aspects of these three stories. So with all that in mind, I'm going to say a quick prayer, and then someone is going to start reading the first parable. Okay, let's pray. Yes, sir. I didn't bring my Bible. It's got big print, so don't ask me to read. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. I won't ask you to read. Let's, let's, let's pray. Father, we are grateful that you do call us together, that you do um, warn us. You ask us and equip us. You state clearly your expectations. Now let your Holy Spirit flow through me, flow through all of us today. Open our hearts and our minds to seek things we've not seen before in these verses, these stories, so that we'll be motivated to carry out the will and the work that you have prepared for us for these days and these times. In the name of Jesus, amen. So with Mr. Roy not being able to read, would someone else be willing to go through the first parable for us? The verses 1 through 14. All right. Go ahead, Glenn. Uh, parable of ten virgins. The time of the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. The foolish ones took their lamps but did not take any oil with them. The wise ones, however, took oil in their jars along with their lamps. The bridegroom was a long time in coming and they all became drowsy and fell asleep. Now at midnight, the cry rang out. Here's the bridegroom. Come out to meet him. The old virgins woke up and trimmed their lamps. The foolish ones said to the wise, give us some of your oil. Our lamps are going out. No, they replied. There may not be enough for both of us and you and you. Instead, go to those who sell oil, buy some for yourselves. But while they were on their way to buy oil, the bridegroom arrived and the virgins were, who were ready went in with him to the wedding banquet, and the door was shut. Later, the others came also. Lord, Lord, they said, open the door for us. But he replied, truly, I tell you, I don't know you. Therefore, keep watch, because you do not know the day or the hour. Hmm. So just so you know, this is on your email, if you want to look at the notes. Um, so the first question I have for you, is: you look at this story between the, the wise virgins and the unwise virgins, do you see some similarities between them? Between them, yeah, they were all virgins. They were all virgins. Very no, I mean that sounds simple, but it's important. Yes, they all had lamps. They all had lamps. They had oil. They all got sleepy. They all got sleepy and went to sleep. What else do you see? Anything else? They were all waiting for the bridegroom. They were all waiting. Yes, yes. We see all this preparation, right? Remember. God is preparing us, and he's got expectations from us. All right? So let me ask you this one. What about the differences? What kind of differences do you see? Some were wise, some were. Some were wise. What made some wise and what made some unwise? Oil. Oil? Oil. Some thought ahead. Yeah? It's very important, isn't it? So um, who do you think the wise ones represent and who do you think the foolish ones represent the wise are the ones waiting for that day to come yeah 
I think the wise uh, really had their heart set on meeting the bridegroom and that they fought through it long and hard and it was important to them. And so that their preparation, um, they made better preparations, understanding that they didn't want anything to come in the way of being able to see the bridegroom. Preparation, right. And their preparation was the oil, right? So I'm I'm just going to, and y'all, y'all are very familiar with these stories. So this won't maybe new for all of you. This time in history, whenever the uh, betrothal came, the husband would commit to marrying the woman, the virgin. He would leave. He would go to his father's house. He would add on to the father's house, prepare a room to start the family, built onto the house, freeing his bride. When the room was completed and everything was ready so he could establish that place of protection and, and provision for that bride, he would then leave. It would be a long journey, typically. And it would usually be he arrive at night. He'd bring his bridal party with him. It'd be a big ceremony. And he would be, guess who's here? And there would be a parade kind of. They would light lamps and they would process out. And there'd be a big ceremony and a celebration. And, and they would, then the bride would leave with the groom, go to the place prepared um, at the father's house for the one he loves, this cherished one. And so here is this beautiful picture. This, again, a living picture of our life in Christ because he has gone to the father's house. Now I've gone to prepare a place for you. And when I, when I and I'm going to come back and take you there to where I'm, you'll be with me. He's doing that right now. John 14, right? He's making that place for us. And he's going to come back with the angels. He's going to gather from the afar, the four corners of the earth and his elect to himself. And there we'll be with him always. So all these things are happening. So this is a picture and this is something they can see, all right? So let me ask you this. Who does the oil represent? Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, exactly. So that's where we go back to our original study where we started with the Holy Spirit. The oil of the Holy Spirit in your life is critical to you being able to be ready when the bridegroom comes. Now, some of them had lamps. They had some oil. They were supposed to be part of the bridal party, but they weren't prepared and they were shut out. Shut out to the point of what does the groom say when they knock on the door? We got some oil now. We're ready to come in. What does he say to them? I do not. I never knew you. Unbelievers. Unbelievers. I would say people in churches. I would say people in churches who believe they are with Christ and they are not. It's convicting. Churches over there, maybe I don't know, uh, Methodist or what have you, but they they were uh, Christian churches, 
but this group did not consider their beliefs. And I can understand that. We can see that in our culture today, I think. Yes, sir. I think this, um, this parable is haunted because I think it's like the sheep and the goats. These are people, these are people, best to be believers. Um, but I didn't know you. And it's not lost. I mean, that it's the bride and groom. You know, what is the, the image of intimacy, the image of, um, and I know it's a pre consummated relationship. The, the image of very close intimacy, um, that you don't know. And, and again, for much of my own walk, these, these stories haunted me. And I think that the thing that's so scary about these parables is that they remind us of the deception that is in so many churches that cultivate um, a, a club of nominal believers that, that don't. Yeah, it is. And I, that is a word I, I like to use the Jesus Club instead of being the ecclesia, the called out, the, the ones chosen. But we, we need to remember that we do not know. We don't know. The, the ones that are, uh, yeah, we're not the judge. We're not the judge. So, and I think the words of, uh, of the Bible are to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, you know, and that James says you will, you're, you will know your salvation by your works. Um, saying it. So it's like this, you know, um, it's easy to get married. It's hard to have a marriage. You can get married like that. Buy a piece of paper, sign something, say a few words, you're married. Do you have a marriage? Mm, we'll see. There's a big difference. And I, and I think that's the deception that the church has unfortunately put upon people, this idea that, that your salvation is easy. Um, no, no, it's not easy. It's very hard. Christianity is a very hard life. It's very, you, you, everything is against you. And, and it's hard. I just want to say this Holy Spirit anointing, kings and priests are anointed, Romans 8 9. However, you are not living in the flesh, controlled by the sinful nature, but in the spirit. In fact, the spirit of God lives in you, directing and guiding you. But if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. And is not a child of God. The five wise virgins went with the groom to the wedding with the door shut behind them. It's too late for the five foolish virgins who missed their opportunity forever. There was no second chance for them. Though they begged to enter, they were too late. And the groom says that I do not know you. In the Jesus story, the wise virgins came prepared with their oil Their oil could not be shared. Faith in Jesus Christ is a personal aspect of your life. You cannot borrow somebody else's faith. Somebody said that God don't have any grandkids. God has children, no grandchildren. Yes, sir. In your studying of this, did you come across so that, you know the culture of these people at this time were monogamous relationships. Why are there 10 versions born bridegroom? What's the, what's the culture of that? That's the bridal party. Okay. So that's, that's, I feel like your bridesmaids, your groomsmen, the attendants who would be with you in the procession, who are, who are preparing the bride. And, and so they go along with that. Yeah. That's encouraging to me because, you know, the church is the bride. 
not any one of us individually. I'm the bride. Called the individual. I'm his favorite too. Yeah, well, <laughs> you're the best looking of us. I'm, so, I'm the most I'm the most beautiful bride. Yeah. Um, so. <laughs> but it really is interesting. We're, we're called the individual relationship, but we're also called the corporate relationship. And, mm-hmm. and you see that here. Yeah. 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 Absolutely. Yeah. That's a, that's a great point. That's a wonderful point. So they cry out in surprise and delight when he shows up. And that's how it's going to be when Jesus comes. Um, so the time for response to salvation is now. Um, our responsibility to Christ is a true. Think about this. If you truly value the gift of the gospel, you will share it. You will discuss it. We bring out God into the open, into circumstances and situations in our lives because we are not ashamed of him. We're not ashamed of the gospel. And also because we value it, we know that this is the only thing that will fix what is wrong with you and where you are in this situation you're you're talking to me about when you meet somebody. So let me ask you this. If you knew of a place right now, a gas station that was selling gasoline for one cent a gallon, would you, you're not in California, who would you tell? Everybody. You'd tell everybody. I would tell nobody because I try to keep my You want to have it all to yourself. You tell nobody. After you fill up, you tell everybody. You tell Joe and Kamala. That's funny. So the gospel is far more valuable than gasoline. And we would certainly tell people we know and love if we knew a place that was selling gasoline for a penny a gallon to help them out. On uh, 61, the gas station sign is broken. It just says nine cents. So I say that to you to drive home to you the point that what you possess, that message of grace and forgiveness is in you, is so very valuable that you should be pouring it out to people. Yes, sir. A lot of people have problems doing that. I would say to them, if you just do it once, very easily, it, it'll grow in you. That the, the, the whole idea of what people can say and think will begin to evaporate. But you got to take that step of uh, of sharing Jesus if you've never done it before. It's a it's a hard thing to do if you've not, never done it before. So we talked about that last week. Thank you for bringing that up. The idea that. You weren't, but you got the notes, and there was a video. So, so uh, listen. So, so here's the thing, though. We don't have to have the responsibility um, with all that weight crushing on us. To, am I going to say it right? Is this right? Am I going to get this out right? I don't know enough. All we have to do is provide people with the opportunity to understand and dig deeper. That's all you got to do. You don't have to you don't have to sit there and convince them of the five reasons God exists, why creation is real, why there's life after death. You don't have to know all those little arguments and all that sort of stuff. You've only got to do is bring God into the situation you're confronting with that person, sickness, death, big issues in life, divorce, kids just strung out on drugs, whatever the situation is. You bring Jesus into that situation, that circumstance, and that conversation, and you present them with the opportunity to know more to dig a little deeper. And that's your responsibility. 
You just you you bring the opportunity. If they want to dig on it, that's great. If they don't, you're free. Sorry. In keeping with your point on there's no second chances and that there is a time of reckoning. Um, I've looked at that at a point of urgency because it's important that we do understand that if we don't say something and people don't hear it and if we don't say it, if they die, there's no second chances. And so at least if we profess something and just share our testimony or whatever it is, um, because at some point we're going to die at some point, they're going to die. And just knowing that there's no second chances that you've got, you've got this time today to do that. And, and hopefully they would come to, to understand and, and believe in the Lord. But that also is a motivating factor for me, understanding that uh, when they die, it's too late. It's too late. Well, in this instance, that point is so compelling. And it's also why I think these passages, again, are so haunting because um, people who are lost, lost, often figure that out. People who are deceived, sitting in churches and believe that they've got it figured out, but are lost or hurting. That's hard, you know, because it's um, we're called to, called to love everybody. Yeah. <laughs> broken ones in the church. Yeah, that's very true. The next one uh, we look at is uh, the second parable, 25, 14 to 30. Who would be willing to read that one? Matthew 25, 14 through 30. You got it? Again, it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted his wealth to them. To one he gave five bags of gold, to another two bags, and to another one bag, each according to his ability. Then he went on his journey. The man who had received five bags of gold went at once and put his money to work and gained five more. So also the one with two bags of gold gained two more. But the man who had received one bag went off, dug a hole in the ground, and hid his master's money. After a long time, the master of those servants returned and settled accounts with them. The man who had received five bags of gold brought the other five. Master, he said, you entrusted me with five bags of gold, so I have gained five more. The master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. The man with two bags of gold also came. Master, he said, you entrusted me with two bags of gold. See, I have gained two more. His master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. Then the man who had received one bag of gold, Master, he said, I knew that you are a hard man, harvesting where you have not sown and gathering where you have not scattered seed. So I was afraid and went out and hid your gold in the ground. See, here is what belongs to you. His master replied, You wicked, lazy servant, you knew that I have that I harvest where I have not sown and gather where I have not scattered. See, well, then you should have put my money on deposit with the bankers so that when I returned, I would have received it back with interest. 
So take the bag of gold from him and give it to the one who has ten bags. For whoever has will be given more, and they will have an abundance. Whoever does not have, even what they have will be taken from them. And throw that worthless servant outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Another sobering story. Yes, Glenn? I, it just, you know, sometimes this is called talents. Talents. And the five talents went to the first. Trip. Yeah. So the talent was known as 20 years wages. Yes. For regular workers. So yes. Five talents is a lot. Yeah, no, and that's a distinction that really irritates me as well, because I will tell you my joke. So which version are you reading there, Harold? The NIV? Yes. The nearly inspired version. <laughs> that's my Bible joke, the nearly inspired version, because I've, I've been in too many Bible studies and people pull their own versions in, and we can read whatever we want. There's nothing against you, you know, so, <laughs> it really is. And I was disappointed also the NLT, which I like. Did the same thing. They were even worse. They didn't use bags of gold. They did bags of silver. And it's like, and so here's the thing. Your version of the Bible, people far smarter than me translated them, okay? And these guys are super smart, you know? And they know languages and I don't know languages. Here's the, here's the disservice to you as a believer. When this story is told and we say bags of gold or bags of silver, we're missing something. When you tell this story in other other versions of the English Bible and other, other, um, other gospels. And they use the word talent. It brings something different to the story. Here's what it brings the story. It brings what Glenn talked about. So depending on who you look at in commentaries on what is the value of a talent, a talent was the largest denomination of money in the day when Jesus was alive on the earth. That's a, it's a big number. Okay. So how much did it represent? people differ. Some people say it was 15 years worth of wages. Some people say it was 25 years worth of wages. Maybe it was 20. Here's a point. That's a lifetime of wealth accumulation. If you think about it, you're going to be working for 15 to 25 years in your life, and that's the lifetime of wealth accumulation. All right. There's a story inside the story. All right. So everybody's given one talent. If you're going to take this and extrapolate it out as a this is a this is a story that God's teaching here on 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 a parable and there's a deeper truth inside of it. So what would be the one talent everyone is given? There you go. Yeah, you 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 are alive, and so the time you have during your lifetime with the knowledge of Christ is a talent. It is a thing of great value which cannot be replaced or reacquired and that makes it immensely valuable because if you know if this building burns down that's tragic we can reacquire it we can rebuild it right you never get your time back it is so very valuable you know voltaire on his deathbed you know <laughs> horrible atheist was begging god for a little bit more time i'll give you half my wealth for a little bit more time because he couldn't get it he was dying now, so anyway, so that's, that's nothing against you, Harold. I'm sorry. But anyway, so I would just encourage you as you read scripture to look at different English versions. And there's lots of apps that you can do that with now for free online. And so you will learn, you will see things in there like, well, the translators picked this version. Why did they pick that word, that word? And you're going to learn deeper stuff as you study scripture. Word for word, thought for thought. Word for word, thought for thought. It's 
NLT and NIV are both thought to bot. Sometimes whenever you're reading a parable, it's helpful to get word for word, like ESV, like that. And I will say this, that there's a, um, the rabbis had a word for this. They call it a Ramirez. A Ramirez is a, um, is a treasure, a hidden treasure. And the hidden treasure is there for those who are willing to mine it out. So if the Holy Spirit is telling you when you're reading and studying a part of scripture, there's something deeper here. There's something deeper there because Satan's not going to tell you that. Okay. The devil's not going to do that. So what can you do? You can go and you can look up the name of a city or a person or an amount. And there will be something deeper hidden in there that you can uh, get value and insight on. So um, the master is entrusting talents, right? These valuable things to these people. So what might that valuable thing represent that he's entrusting to them? All this stuff is is a parable, right? So it represents something, right? So what is this thing of great value that's being entrusted to these servants? It's not money. I mean, in the story, it's money. But what is it to you? Life is one. Yeah, that's one. The Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit. What's the most valuable thing you possess? Oh, we got a little. What's that here? So you said salvation. You said life, the life of Jesus. Jesus. Yeah. Yeah. So I would say that that is your most valuable possession is the knowledge of God, the knowledge of forgiveness, the knowledge of the cross, the knowledge of Jesus. That is, I think is our most valuable possession. Yes. Start wondering what's 10 to five or whatever. Uh, I, Mm -hmm. I think it's basically it's the presence of Jesus in me. But some people have a great deal of knowledge and commitment to the Lord, uh, more so than others, and all of them may be saved. Yes. I I think it it, it talks about something, for me, like uh, it would be Pastor Merlin. Maybe he's got, oh, so much more commitment to the Lord. And and I think that's what talents could be. Sure. It could be the individual gifts of the Spirit that we've studied before. There's a lot of things it could be, right? So, um, so he's entrusting them with this thing of great wealth. And I, I, I would say that I, I think it is your knowledge. Um, so think about this. one. Jesus said, it is more blessed to give than receive, right? And I've always thought of that verse in terms of monetary things. You know, you know, and you, there's it's certainly true that when you give somebody something, there's a reward that you feel in the bestowing of that gift. What about this? What is what about this? What if I put a word in there? What if I say it's more blessed to give forgiveness than to receive forgiveness? It's a different economy on that phrase. So when you it's more blessed to give your knowledge of Christ to somebody than it is to just to have it and retain it, to receive it and hold it. What about when Peter and John in Acts chapter three, when they're outside going to the temple and this beggar is sitting there and he's asking them, what's he say? I give you some money. And why is that? Because he thought the most valuable thing they possess would be money. But what does Peter say? I got something better than that. Yeah. The most valuable thing I possess ain't silver and gold. I ain't got none of it anyway. But I'm going to give you the most valuable thing I do possess in the name of Jesus. Stand up and walk. So the power of Christ 
was the most valuable thing he possessed because of what he had through his, his forgiveness, through the Holy Spirit. And he bestowed it on him. He gave it to somebody else. Are you with me? Life-altering, how that is. So the talent is a lifetime. Think about this. That, um, the encapsulation of a lifetime, that talent is that wealth, that earning. So what about the encapsulation of eternal lifetime is in the gospel? Three servants, three amounts of gifts. Think about their attitudes. How do you describe um, what each one of those servants do with their, with their gifts, their talents, their bags of gold? The lazy man just buries it. The lazy man buries it. Is he lazy, though? Is he lazy, though? I mean, you talk about 20 years of salary. Maybe it was fear. Fear? You know, it's just yeah. like dumping a bunch of money in the stock market. There's Maybe. risk associated with it. it Consequences sure. of death if you lost mm-hmm. all those wages. I mean, where the... Yeah. 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 He doesn't, doesn't know anything, doesn't care to learn anything or just wants to exist. So I hear what you're saying, but what did, what did the master say? You could have done what with it? Put it in the bank. It made interest, right? Yeah. I mean, yeah, so then you, he was afraid of the banks. And Robert Barons, yes, sir. There's something I think about this, and I may, and I may be way off what anybody else thinks, but his explanation as to why he buried it, it says because you've you try and reap harvest from where you haven't sown any seed. Mm-hmm. It almost comes to me as like, hey, I put this money away to where I know it won't be lost. It seems like you have a habit of risking a lot of stuff. You know, where the other two slaves may have, like when we say stock market, stock market's always a risk. A lot of people made a lot of money off of it. A lot of people have lost a lot off of it. Where this guy, I think, was thinking, I put in a hole. It'll stay there. It'll be there. You go off and do your thing because you lost. You may have lost a lot already, and these other two may have lost your money. But I've still got the one that I've got. I think it's kind of like I'm going to hold on this little bit that I've got and not lose it mm-hmm. and not risk it. What you got, Mister Roy? I don't disagree with that at all. But I think there might be another aspect of it. If we have a responsibility and we should do something, well, if I put this out of sight and I don't see it, then it doesn't remind me of my responsibility, you know, to go and work and and um, and, and share the gospel in this case. Yeah. You know? So, so he, he hid it so we wouldn't have to be reminded that he was responsible for something. Let me ask you this: Does it maybe sound like to you? The, 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 the one that got the one, the lazy servant, the wicked servant is the words that Jesus uses here, that he might be taking a little bit of the tact that we saw in the first sin, blaming the giver. You know, God, it's that woman you gave me. If that's the reason all this has happened. Oh, it wasn't my fault. It's that serpent you made. That's why all this went awry. You hadn't made this. That wouldn't happen. I mean, it really is. It's an old excuse. I, 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 I kind of see that here. He's blaming the master. You go out and you harvest where you haven't sown. You go out and you have these expectations that are beyond what we can do. You, he's blaming the master. Oh, 
What do you think the primary lesson Jesus is trying to teach here in this one's parable? Be faithful. Be faithful. Let me ask you, I'm going to ask you a probing question now. What is the spiritual treasure that God has deposited inside of you? You don't have to answer out loud. You just need to think about that one. Because he has. He has deposited, I would say in y'all, multiple spiritual treasures inside of y'all because I know y'all I know how much you love the Lord and worship him and read your Bible and study how faithful you are I would say you have an abundance of spiritual treasure deposited inside of you from God so let me ask you are you investing it in people around you are you sharing it with people around you are you tipping are you putting a tip out there you know are you sharing it are poured into us, but we kind of like put it in the jar and, and bury it in the ground. We don't want if we don't push out. Like you know, there may be somebody we meet on the street. I can witness to y'all. Yes. But sometimes we don't pour out that spirit on the person because we don't have time. We may don't trust ourselves, and we just need to. You just hit me like wow. Yeah. Um, yeah, we don't use the spirit, his gifts as much as we should use it. Right. Because he wants us to use it, not keep it in that jar. Exactly. And pour it out. And the yeah. more you pour out, the more you get and the more you receive. And, and that's you fill up more. That's a principle in scripture, right? That reminds me of the uh the difference in uh reminds me of the difference between Somebody said, are you the Sea of Galilee or are you the Dead Sea? Yes. Because in the Sea of Galilee, water comes in and it and it refreshes and there's peace, there's life and everything, and it flows out of the Galilee. So when something comes into us, it, it comes in as a deposit, but then it should flow out of us and then things are living. But the water in the Jordan River goes to the Dead Sea and it, there's no outlet. And the soul salt and death. And so when something comes in and comes into you, if it just stays in there, it's dead. So you can be the Sea of Galilee or you can be the Dead Sea. So. Yeah, it's very true. We're running out of time, so I want to be quick on this. Um, Jesus said we have a direct role in the timing of his return. He said this, um, and this is good news. Uh, the kingdom, the gospel will be preached throughout the whole world as a testimony to all the nations. And then will come the end. That's Matthew 24, 14. So the gospel, the message of forgiveness, and the blessing of eternal life. When that message is received and expressed, that gospel is in possession of the entire world. Then is the time of the end. It's one of those things. So you have a role in that. You could be the person that witnesses the last person who receives the gospel. Because somebody will be the last person that witnesses the last person who receives the gospel. And then it's over. It's, it will happen to someone will do it. Now, that message of the gospel is in us, and we become that messenger. Greg, would you read the last section for us? 31 through 46, the sheep and the goats. Matthew 25.
But when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate them from one another. And the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats, and he will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed of my father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For when I was hungry, you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. Naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him. Lord, when did we see you hungry, and feed you, or thirsty, and you gave you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger, and invite you in, or naked, and clothe you? When did we see you sick, or in prison, and come to you? The king, answer, the king will answer him and say to them, Truly I say to you, to that extent you did to one of these brothers of mine, even the least of them you did to me. Then he will also say to those on his left, Depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger and you did not invite me in. Naked you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, you did not visit me. Then they say, them, then they themselves will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry, or thirsty, or stranger, or naked, or sick, or in prison? You did not take care of me. And he will answer them, Truly I say to you, to the extent that you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. These will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. That's haunting. The sheep are honored, the goats are condemned. Jesus himself is divided is the dividing line. Jesus is the dividing line. And he separates people across ages into two distinct groups. The serious reality of eternal judgment and the glorious reality of eternal salvation. There are two outcomes awaiting mankind. Everyone has eternal life. Everyone has it. The question is, what kind of eternal life will you have? Some will have a blessed and glorious eternal life, and some will have a horrible, terrifying eternal life. That should motivate us. How does that impact you? I mean, are you compelled to represent Jesus and help people in your circle of influence prepare to meet him? In the end, the only thing that matters in this life that really matters is knowing and loving Jesus. That's all that really matters. Let's recap here. There's, there's, we are entrusted with a responsibility. All right. God is depositing stuff inside of us. Once you receive the message of forgiveness, it begins to accumulate. There is a day of accountability. Everyone will stand before Jesus and be judge. The judge takes the throne and Jesus will separate the people. He taught these parables of the 10 virgins that every person prepares to meet Jesus individually. All right. The parable of talents, he called Christians to use what has been given to them to share his truth with others. And the parable of sheep and the goats, he shows us when he sits on that throne of judgment as king and judge, he will separate those who believe in him and those who do not believe in him. Those who serve Jesus will serve the needy and the weak. And the way we share Jesus in our actions, if we share the gospel, if we share the gospel without compassion for others, we 
are sharing them and talking to them about a hollow gospel. There's no, there's nothing inside of it. If you aren't willing to help people. Now, the other side of that is if all you want to do is help people and not share the gospel with them in the process of that, then you are hollow and your actions are hollow because you know what's coming. If we are faithful servants, we will hear those most valuable words. Well done, good and faithful servant. And the master, he will tell us that. So hearing those words from Jesus will make all, if, if we hear those words, well done, good and faithful servant, that will make all the pain and suffering of this life worth it. If we're faithful to the end and hear that. Let's pray. Oh, not hearing those words will be absolutely crushing. Father God, we are thankful for the stories you grant us, the knowledge we receive, the things you deposit in us. Help us be willing to share those. Let that flow out of us to share the knowledge of you with others. And all we need to bring you out in the open and discuss you with those because there is a great and terrible day coming. May we prepare ourselves and others for that. In the name of Jesus, amen. Thank you all for being here.